Even in the winter of Jewish exile, in the coldest and most frigid moments of our history, when the notion that the Jewish people would one day return to the Holy Land seemed ridiculous, Jews still continued to learn about the temple, continued to long for the land of Israel, and envisioned an age when a return to Jerusalem would occur once again. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 284, A Lion in Winter. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak of snow. This past winter, there was a snowfall in Israel, and the Jewish world was treated to beautiful images of the Holy Land, coated in a sheet of white. But as interesting as the images was the obvious emotion of those that were capturing them. Israelis, who were not used to snow, were so overjoyed to experience it. As a Chicagoan, I was struck by how a substance that was such a central and commonplace experience in my childhood was being greeted by others with such obvious delight. And the realization of the very rarity of snow in the Holy Land inspired me at that moment to look with renewed interest at what it might symbolize. I now share these thoughts with you as we study one of the few passages where snow makes an appearance in the Bible itself. Following a brief summation of the reign and downfall of Saul, chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles describes the coming of David to the throne. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And moreover, in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. What follows is a description, paralleling one in the book of Samuel, of David's greatest warriors, beginning with the one that captured Jerusalem. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Yevus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Yevus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Yoav, the son of Tzruya, went first up and was chief. Thus we have the first and most important of David's fighting men. Yoav, with whom David's relationship is complex. Yoav is often indispensable, and yet eventually, as we have seen, David on his deathbed tells Solomon that Yoav must be punished for disobedience and for violent acts against those who ought to have been left unharmed. Chronicles then goes on to name some of David's other great warriors. Verse 9. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom and with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Yoshavam, a Chachmonite, the chief of the captains, he lifted up his spear against 300 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Achoite, who was one of the three mighties. He was with David at Pashtamim, and there the Philistines were gathered together to battle where there was a parcel of ground full of barley and the people fled from before the Philistines. The text then goes on to describe how this great warrior saved Israel in crisis. Even in the midst of depictions of military heroism, the Bible takes pains to emphasize what set David apart as a warrior. The glory of battle was never meant to accrue to him. We are informed of the profound remorse that David felt when his fighters risked their lives, not on behalf of national security, but for David's own benefit. Verse 15. Now three of the thirty captains went down to the rock to David, into the cave of Adullam, and the host of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the hold, and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem. 
And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. And the three broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink of it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, My God forbid it me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that have put their lives in jeopardy? For with the jeopardy of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. And then, and then, we are introduced to another man, another warrior. Benayahu, the son of Yehoiada, a valiant man of Kavtsael, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Also, he went down and slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Benayahu will ultimately become one of the most dedicated servants of David, always loyal to the king and to Solomon his son, in a way that Yoav will not be. But what exactly is this feat for which he was known? Who he cut at Hari biyom hashelag, we are told. Benayahu was so mighty that he was able to wrestle a lion and smite it in a pit on a snowy day. The simple meaning is that this is an illustration of strength, that even on a snowy day, when the frigid weather saps one's might, this man was able to fight a lion. And in beginning to understand why the Bible would stress the specific feat, athletic ability in the snow, we must turn for a moment to modern athletic exhibitionism. As you may be aware, in some cities, sports are played in stadiums bestowed with domes to protect the players and spectators from inclement weather. In my hometown of Chicago, however, roofs are not provided to protect sports enthusiasts from the frigid cold. And it was a sports analytic website that studied what happens when teams that usually play under the protection of a dome come to a city like Chicago and play in the cold without it. Brian Burke of AdvancedFootballAnalytics.com tells us the following, quote, A few years ago, I looked at how well teams from various climate types played when visiting other climate types. The most remarkable result was that dome teams win only about 20% of the time when playing in the cold. But that study was limited in several ways. Instead of actual temperature data, I used December in a cold weather city as a proxy for cold temperature. I also was limited to regular season games from 2002 through 2006. With new and better data, I redid the study. This time I have actual temperatures and used all non-preseason games from 2000 through the wildcard round of the 2011 season last Sunday. Here are the results. The graph below depicts the winning percentage of the road team by temperature at kickoff. Road teams are classified according to their home climate. Dome, cold, moderate, or warm. Just as we saw in the original study, dome teams playing in cold weather appear to be at a severe disadvantage. And just as we might expect, teams from warm cities struggle quite a bit as the temperature drops. The teams from moderate climates are less affected, and the teams from cold climates don't appear to be affected at all. Sample sizes get smaller as the temperature drops. In the 11 to 20 degree bin, there are 17 cold visitors, 8 dome visitors, 9 moderate visitors, and 6 warm visitors. In the 20 to 30 bin, there were 45, 15, 32, and 19 cold, dome, moderate, and warm visitors. Taken as a whole, however, the trends appear undeniable. The less acclimated a team is to a cold climate, the worse it fares. Zero out of eight dome teams in the data set won in cold weather 20 degrees or below, and only three out of 23, 13%, have won in temperature 30 degrees or below. End quote. We can understand then, ladies and gentlemen, as a matter of simple textual interpretation, why the book of Chronicles stresses the fact that the warrior of David was able to defeat a lion in the snow. Why would we think Benayel would be weaker in the snow while fighting against an animal? For the same reason that those living in the Holy Land today are so excited by a bit of snow, because they're not used to it. 
We would assume, therefore, that like a football player from a warm climate or a domed arena, Benayel might have been at a disadvantage in the frigid cold, in a blizzard. But, we are told, his strength was so great, his skill so extraordinary, that he still emerged victorious. This, then, is the simple interpretation of the verse. But the rabbinic sages, in homiletical interpretation, interpreted this sentence symbolically as a reference to an activity other than the physical. The verse, the description of fighting a lion in the snow, they write, is a metaphor for intellectual ability. That during the winter, when it was cold, windy, and difficult to concentrate, Benayahu was able to learn the most incredibly complicated of Jewish laws, known as the Sifra de Beirav, which are the laws of the land of Israel and the temple, the Levitical laws of offerings. Now, on the face of it, this is a strange interpretation of a verse. Chronicles here says nothing about studying the laws of the temple in the winter. It was Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik who once suggested, in a brilliant homiletical interpretation of this homiletical interpretation, that the rabbinic statement can be seen as a description of the members of the rabbinic tradition themselves throughout the generations. And what is being described truly is not physical feats or intellectual strength, but rather extraordinary emuna, profound faith. What does it mean to battle a lion in winter? What does it mean to study the laws of the temple in the frigid cold? The point is that even in the winter of Jewish exile, in the coldest and most frigid moments of our history, when the notion that the Jewish people would one day return to the Holy Land seemed ridiculous, when the concept of a return to Jerusalem and the temple seemed sheer fantasy, Jews still continued to learn about the temple continued to long for the land of Israel, and envisioned an age when a return to Jerusalem would occur once again. The Jewish people, against the expectations of all, made manifest the virtues of faith and hope. Hope in return. Hope in marking the Torah's laws of Jerusalem once again. The Midrash about a physical feat in the snow can thus be read as a Midrash about Jewish faith warming the heart and soul of the Jew in the most frigid moments of Jewish history. From this perspective, to see snow enjoyed by Jews in a reborn Jewish state is itself a wondrous source of inspiration. Following the snowfall, a particularly delightful video was posted by an Israeli in which we see gazelles bounding through the snow on the sacred soil of the Holy Land. As I watched it, I thought of another verse in the Tanakh, one referencing not snow, but rather the tzvi, the gazelle. In the Song of Songs, Scripture references the beloved, a reference to the divine. Dome dodi latzvi, my beloved, is like unto a gazelle. And I believe I heard in the name of Rabbi Yehuda Amital the following interpretation of this verse. When one watches a gazelle bound through the hills of Judah, the animal is visible for a moment as it springs in the air, and then it blends back into its environment, until, in an ecstatic leap, it is seen again. In a similar sense, Rabbi Amital said, there are moments in history when in a flash, the beloved, God himself, suddenly makes himself manifest. Snow being celebrated in a flourishing Jewish state should remind us of the miracles of our time that have vindicated the faith of generations. In reading the biblical description of a warrior in the snow and pondering the way this verse has been interpreted throughout the ages, we come to the conclusion that even for a Chicagoan, snow can be a source of inspiration and spiritual warmth. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.